Blog Talk Radio. This is Patty Holstrand and this is KWAD Radio and we're on live. This is Sunday. I know. Monday's right and that's tomorrow, isn't it? Bummer, huh? Well, you know what? That's okay because it's still Sunday. And it's only 7.30, so, you know, you guys can sit back, grab a glass of wine or just, you know, a can of pop and just kind of sit back and listen. Or you can actually call in and and argue. We like that. (laughs) Call in number 714-242-5145. But you know what? We're going to let Don get started because, you know, you know how long he can talk. So here we go. This is Donald Jocks. Welcome, everybody. We've had a bang-up couple of weeks in the space industry. I tell you what, the politics is just throwing eggs back and forth and trying to make the other one wear it all. i got to tell you, it's been a ping-pong game between the Russians and the U.S. Congress. Like a werewolf? Wear it. No, 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 no. We're, we're not, not a wear it all. We're, we're talking about, you know, between the United States and, and Russia bouncing uh, ping pong balls made out of eggs and uh, rotten ones to boot. They're complaining to each other, and both of them are trying to pout and pull out of the sandbox that is the ISS. Okay, let's, let's catch everybody up. Okay, back a few a month or so ago, uh, the Ukraine started having some difficulties in Crimea, basically a, a, some part of their country, used to be Russian, or used to be part of the Soviet Union, now a separate country called Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Russia got in there and, and, and they had people that in Crimea wanted to secede from the Ukraine and join Russia. And, you know, that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. But then Russia decided to throw in a whole bunch of troops and, you know, mess with the political system in Crimea and do a whole bunch of little things and threaten stuff and then wanted to move north, I think it's north, up into the the Ukraine proper and all this kind of stuff and waving sabers and all stuff like from back in the Cold War days. But anyway, to make a long story short, the U.S. decided to issue sanctions against Russia to the inclusion of freezing accounts of Russian officials and curbing imports from Russia. This past week, after a lawsuit filed by SpaceX over the RD-180 engines and the U.S. Air Force monopoly bid fiasco, the government responded in a domino fashion to execute a series of sanctions against Russia and, more specifically, several Russian officials. Now, Russia's Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Rogozin is threatening, one, to ban the U.S. from using the International Space Station. Okay, i got a real problem with this point. You know, it's not even valid. To ban the U.S. from buying the Russian RD rocket engines currently used in ULA's Atlas V launcher used for U.S. military satellite launches. As I understand, they didn't want to ban us from the rocket engines altogether. They want to ban us using them for military launches. That's an important distinction. And a lot of people out there are regurgitating the line that Russia is going to ban the U.S. from the ISS and they're going to ban the RD-180 rocket engines altogether. And, you know... Come on, people, get the facts straight. Third, 
a recent thing just in the last few days. They're going to disengage the Russian segment of the ISS in 2020, essentially making the station unable to move. And lastly, to withdraw all Russian launch support of the, to, to the ISS in 2020. Okay. Generally, Russia's creating a pout. They're going to stop playing in the international sandbox and go home and tell their mommy. This doesn't mean that the U.S. is without blame. They're pouting as much as the Russians are. Nobody wants to play nice here. Let's take a look at a little bit of history. Back in 2009, that's five years ago, the BBC reported that Russia is, was planning to disengage their modules from the ISS in order to form the core of a new orbital outpost which would serve as a haven and assembly shop for deep space missions heading to the moon, Mars, and beyond. Whoa! This is nothing new. In fact, I believe, I seem to recall dimly that I recall something way back in the early years of the assembly of the ISS. So the Russians talked about this, that their modules were beefier because they weren't going to burn them up in the atmosphere after the ISS was done with them. That they fully intended to reuse these modules in another arena once the U.S. and the European Union were done with the ISS. Now, Here's some reality check. If the Russians follow through with their plans in 2020, it would leave the ISS without a propulsion module and some other key components. And, of course, that's, that's pretty important. But let's take a look at a few things. If Congress were to get PO'd, they would likely just appropriate the funds to get a new module in place before the Russians leave. Now, I happen to know on good authority, just look at the Bigelow website, they would probably just love the opportunity to park one of his BA-330s at the station with a six-way docking block so an ATV could hook up and boost the station as needed. And, of course, I also know that the Vasimir folks have been chomping at the bit to get their Vasimir engine mounted on that ISS in order to provide a long-term, small amount of boost to keep the station where it needs to be. And I'll bet they'd fall all over themselves with the chance to accelerate the current deal and upgrade the booster test to a full booster modules. Wow. Do the Russians have any teeth in their threats? Well, maybe. Given that the Congress and NASA, both infected with NIHS, not invented here syndrome, the likelihood is high that they would just dump the ISS into the ocean. What a bunch of mamby-pamby wimps. In other news, we're going to leave this alone. I'll get off the soapbox here. In other news this week, Dragon Cargo, number three, successfully returned to Earth in a perfect splashdown off the coast of California just the last couple of days. And in that same time period, ISS Expedition 39 returned to Earth this week as Expedition 40 arrived to take its place at the ISS. Friday, ULA successfully launches its GPS IIF-6 satellite. And for a little peek into the future... We had a little note come up on the MURC forum, hosted a message about a possible leaked photo of a Dragon 2 wind tunnel module. Woohoo! Sneak peeks, always fun. And a congressman wants to ban Elon Musk from competing in space. Whoa, this guy has some nerves. We'll put the links up here in a few minutes to these news stories. Uh, this one actually was from Forbes. And, you know, he's, I don't even know if he's really a congressman by the way they, they mention it here, because I think he's just like some some assistant to something or other guy who is a congressman. So I'm not sure what's going on here, what this guy thinks he's doing. 
Um, and lastly, <laughs> is this really a surprise that the U.S. is working hard to certify SpaceX for military launches? Yeah, I'll bet they are. You know, when, when they're faced with the, the, the public relations fiasco of the last few weeks and Elon Musk's lawsuit, yeah, I'll bet they're working hard to get that done. But, um, you know, the way the article sounds, they've been working on this even before Musk's lawsuit. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see just how quickly that comes to fruition. Also this week, we saw some articles about uh, Earth bacteria is tough enough for space travel. Now, you know, this is interesting because we got a lot of um, space tree huggers out there who think we ought to leave the moon and Mars alone, that we shouldn't be landing out there, that we should leave them in their pristine condition. For what? You know, this that, that just doesn't make sense. If we're to become a multi-planet species... It's going to happen. There's, it's just the way things are. So you know, there's an article there for y'all to check out. Exodus Earth was a series put on by a, a public service uh, company, and there, the actual series covers Callisto, a moon of Jupiter, covers Ganymede, also of Jupiter, covers Titan, a moon of Saturn. And I think they also cover a bit of uh, Mercury, no, Venus, sorry about that, Venus and the Moon and Mars. Now, each of these videos is hosted on YouTube, and I've got a link for the Callisto one here. The Martian one, they had a real problem. They, they got a, an English version of the video with what sounds like maybe a French or German voice dub. And i got to tell you, it's almost unwatchable, and, and as much as I looked all over the web trying to find a, a full English version, couldn't find it, and haven't been able to find um, the the core posting to find the original video. So good luck, guys. If you find it, send us a link. I'd really love to see that in English, the original English. Also, we had Elon Musk's SpaceX claims an evolutionary breakthrough in rocket technology. Many of you may recall seeing all over the face. Facebook and uh, some of the news outlets, um, SpaceX actually succeeded in a soft landing of their booster that put the current Dragon that just returned. They had a soft landing in the ocean of their booster. Eight seconds it hovered over a stormy ocean. Now, you know, it's not enough that they had a soft landing and hovered over the ocean for a whole eight seconds. They did it over an ocean that was at war with everybody. <laughs> you got you to love these guys. You know, SpaceX is, if, has been really consistent um, since they really got their act together with their, their launchers and everything, the Grasshopper program, all these kind of things. They've, they've really, really been showing up just about everybody, NASA included. Uh, and, and speaking of NASA... Um, NASA has been setting up a Google project, Tango smartphone, up to space to improve flying robots. There's a there's a link there we'll put up on the the show here in just a few minutes. And all oh, we got some really cool stuff coming in from uh, Arecibo Observatory. Apparently, they've detected 
not dissected yet. They're still working on it. They've detected a mysterious energetic radio burst. Now, this was back on the 20th of this month. And apparently this is, this is a real big thing. I'm sorry, uh, 20th of last month they reported this. But this is interesting because, you know, it'll probably turn out to be something linked to a quasar or something like this. They don't think it's an ET thing, but, hey, you never know. So let's, let's kind of keep an eye on this and we'll take a look. Uh, on the PR front, we got quite a, we got a couple of people who are um, lighting the fires under the, the PR things. Uh, a guy by the name of uh, Whitesides works for Space, uh, I believe it's Virgin Galactic, if I got that right. Uh, vows to fly on Spaceship 2 test flight. Um, that's going to be interesting. Um, and then we had that same week <laughs> the Air Force's mini shuttle, the X 37B space plane, hit its 500th day in orbit. And here was something that really ticked me off. I mean, NASA's new contract with um, the Russian Soyuz launches for, for astronauts to fly. NASA's now paying $70 million a seat to send astronauts up to the ISS. You know, you. you <laughs> you got to love a sucker, you know. You've got to be sympathetic, but, hey, you know, it is what it is. Russians are taking advantage of it, and, whew, good whole thing. Ah, another PR thing. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not PR. John Hubolt, spelled H-O-U-B-O-L-T, the NASA engineer who is credited, actually, who fought for over a decade for the uh, moon landing method that we ended up using and for the rendezvous techniques and everything that we used in the Apollo program to get our astronauts on the moon dies at 95 years old this month, or, or last month. Um, strong man. He, he actually did what it took to make that happen. And... You just you got to respect a man like that. Um, we got a lot of stuff going on tonight. We're going to be really reaming some things. I look forward to uh, when Patty comes back to join us in just a few minutes. We're going to be talking about um, a lot of the stuff that's been going on and some of the things that you just really got to wonder about the U.S. and the Russians and how they're playing in this sandbox. Uh, and you know, I gotta tell you, it just it just sounds like a couple of kids from the neighborhood being four year olds complaining because one guy ain't playing fair and so now they're lobbing mud balls at each other and one guy gets hit in the face and now he's gonna run home to mommy and their Politburo or Parliament and, and Congress and they're all gonna Yell to mommy about he's not playing fair. And, you know, with all the exciting things that are happening these days, I don't know why these politicians got to be such idiots. It's just absolute idiots to pull, to pull politics on these issues for stupid reasons. Now, you know... Welcome back, Patty. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I can I can taunt and rant and rave on stuff. That's for sure. All over, but I don't think I'm ranting alone here. No, I think that you might be right about the sandbox thing. But really, I mean, are they taking advantage of the situation, or what's the deal here? Well, you know, Russia, five years ago, Russia had started planning the idea of pulling their modules off the ISS and putting them into their own new station that they've been planning for over a decade. They wanted to have another station on their own. They've so it been seems as, reasonable. Yeah. They've got the money. And, and, and they've been talking about this for years, although I have to say. Although I wonder, then what they're going to call it, because it's not an international space station then. Well, no. There, there's a, be a Russian Vezda, space station. Well, yeah. There's a Vesda unit, the Zariah unit, and a couple of other you know peripheral things that will go with those. They're going to pull those two modules off and make their own Russian space station. Now, they've wanted to do this for a long time. But, but I got. Says, what's the point? Well, it's because they want to do what everybody else is doing. They want to send ships out to the moon. They want to send ships to Mars. They want to do what everybody else is talking about the same as we do. Well, then what's... Yes, but I, I don't get the concept of building your own house just, <laughs> just so you can go to the moon. Just go to the moon, okay? Well, see, there you go. Here's the thing. The International Space Station makes a whole lot more sense to just build on it as a foundation as a whole. In other words, bring up the new modules, add them to the ISS, bump it up a little higher. Probably the same kind of idiots to actually build another uh, another strip mall across the street because they can. <laughs> when the when the other one across the street is half empty. I mean, what the you know, what the hell, people? Oh, but it's. But it's, it's that old classic thing, NIHS. You know what NIHS stands for? Yeah, what's in it for me? No. Oh. Not invented here syndrome. Yeah. We didn't invent it. I didn't build that mall across the street. It's not mine. So we're going to see if we can take what customers they got left, and we're going to add a few more. That's so what it's about. It doesn't work that way. What? It doesn't work that way. Well, they think it does. Well, see, the same thing's going to happen to Russia. They're they're going to they're going to go broke, and they're going to scream at us, "Oh, please save us! Please save us!" Because you know that's what we do. Well, we go and save people. Yeah, yeah, but I I'm not so sure that's likely to happen. Here's the thing: the U.S. almost didn't finish the shuttle. We had trouble throughout the entire 20-year program of the shuttle. The Russians didn't finish theirs. And a lot of it was funding. They just didn't have the money. The U.S. almost didn't have the money. But we did it. But we did it. Yeah, we, we finished the project out of pure... Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Idiocy. Yeah, we did. Exactly. Now, but it was cool. It was it was very cool, but you know I was I was looking at the space shuttle history a little while ago. Do you know that it took what was it? Uh, I want to say twenty years. I think no, it doesn't. Say, well, it was at least ten years from the flight of the first shuttle until the space station started getting assembly. 
I mean, it was like the whole point of the space shuttle was to build a space station. Well, and it took ten years to get there for international use. Well, now see, you're splitting hairs there. No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> the no, whole thing. You're saying that we can't all play together is what you're saying. Well, I was saying that a few minutes ago. Yeah, no, I heard you. I mean, Europe and the U.S. and Japan, and and to a certain degree, uh, India jumped in. They're all part and parcel to the International Space Station, and and everybody's been having fun in the sandbox. Yeah, some every once in a while you get a little sand in your eye, but that's that's part of the thing about building stuff and trading information and things like that. But the you know, and, and I and I have to admit, I, I can't recall who threw the first punch with the space station. But I do know that, you know, part of this could be, um, well, you know, wait a minute. That'd make a really good cartoon. Yeah, yeah, it really would. It really would. Uh, but here's here's one thing to remember. You know, I think, I, th I have to admit, I, maybe it might have been Elon Musk who threw the first punch. Ooh. Victoria's bad boy. Oh, yeah, you say that with a great big smile on your face. You like that guy, huh? Just remember, he's married. Well, well. You know, nobody perfect. <laughs> Elon Musk clearly is flexing his political muscle here. He files a lawsuit primarily to challenge the RD-180 engines from Russia coming into the U.S. and being used for military use based on uh, the activities of Russia invading, uh, basically invading Crimea and pushing for the Ukraine. Um, so uh, on that aspect, it seems valid and legitimate concern. Yeah. By the same token, he then turns around, and I don't remember if it was the same suit or a separate suit, but he sues the U.S. Air Force for a monopoly contract with ULA for all military satellite launches, and why wasn't SpaceX allowed to bid on that? Well, the truth is, and here's here's the rub, because the news agencies and politics as usual never really paint the picture as it really was. Elon Musk's Dragon and booster system wasn't really available at the time that the contract was put out for bid. It wasn't done yet. They hadn't been certified for NASA launches, and I, and I could be misspeaking here, so if somebody's got the right dates, let me know. But as I recall, dimly, I don't think SpaceX was ready and certified for civilian launches, much less military. But, as I pointed out a few minutes ago, there was an article recently where um, the Air Force is actually on track to spend $60 million to certify SpaceX for the military launches. I mean, they're throwing 100 people and $60 million. Of course, i gotta, I got to wonder here. Okay, you got 100 people. They're spending $60 million. So if they're only using these 100 people, <laughs> these people are making a big wad of money. Yeah. Whoever these 100 people are. A wad of money. That's a wad of money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we should know. We know what of means. Yeah, there we go. You just so, had you had to get the plug in there, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah. Oh. So I saw an article that stated that Elon Musk was like a Tony Stark of today. 
Sure. And, you know, I... I, I wonder I, when he's going to strap on that cool suit. <laughs> he's got the I, money. Oh, you know what else he's got? You know, we saw we saw an Iron Man that wonderful. He goes down to his basement and he talks to his computer and he's sitting there doing stuff in midair. Like uh, you remember Tom Cruise in Minority Report did the same thing. Oh, he's just I like using the one, his hands. The one that the machine that was acting up and it was spraying him down before he really needed it. <laughs> he's like yeah. a bad dog. You just love the way that white, foamy stuff got all over that hard Iron Man suit, didn't you? Oh, I just like the hard Iron Man suit. Yeah, I know you did. Oh, well, you were just really loving it. I, I remember that. But I got to, you know. The way it stands still while it gets, while it gets hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's a girl's perspective. I hear you. to me. <laughs> yeah, I hear it. Okay, sounds like you need a little cool off there, yeah. girl. Yeah. Go cool off for a couple of minutes. Um, but you know, it's it it is it is interesting, um, the stuff that's going on now as we begin to ramp up with all the goings on as things are getting getting going here. Now, just just a reminder for the ISS, we've got uh, the new um, Expedition Forty crew has arrived, taking up residence this week. Um, uh, Expedition 39 came home. The Dragon, uh, on its cargo trip, came home. And it didn't just come home, but it came home with uh, almost two tons of uh, experimental results and uh, material for NASA. Uh, beautiful splashdown in the uh, Pacific Ocean just outside off the coast of uh, California. Now, when we come back, we're going to take a short, uh, short break here. Um, this is... Hang on, I of course. Push, I gotta push the button. You gotta push the button. Okay, yeah, we'll come over. Well, then get over here and get ready to push I'm not the button. Sure who came, either. We're gonna take a break. This is uh, Wad uh, Media, Blog Talk Radio, K Wad Radio. We are broadcasting now. We're talking about the next space. This is um, where we're headed next. If we're gonna be a multiplanetary species, uh, uh, Einstein. Are you talking, or is it time for me to push the button? Just a minute. Give me a second here. <laughs> We're talking about the next space, folks. We're talking about stuff that Elon Musk has talked about this. Stephen Hawking has talked about us being a multi-planet species. We know we need to go there. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail on maybe some ideas that might get us there. See you in a few minutes. Talk the hour. We'll go to 8 o'clock and call timer on here so that I know. Where is the timer? I don't see it. Oh. There it is. Okay, I see it. Um... I think I got a good start this week. I was ready, had some great material. I want you to make sure that tonight after the show, I want you to put up the next one. We're gonna do one next Sunday. I wanna wrap this up and I wanna publicize it this time.
One minute. What's that? Right. I want to be able to publicize it. Also, I want to learn how to put these links up there. Uh, let's save this. Well, I'm going to put the document over the transfer folder. Well, there are links online, but what I'm going to do is... Uh, oh, 49 seconds. Do a plug for a couple of our uh, Radio. And this is uh, <laughs> this is bounty messing up today. So guess what? You got to hear everything we were doing. We're talking. What a concept! I just want to say, hey, thanks so much for. Oh yeah, go turn down everything. Once you got down in the kitchen, you should see that. It's interesting. So uh, I'd like to thank our couple of our sponsors. Which we have, uh, we have Glitter. Glitter is an awesome uh, uh, mo- mobile app that you can share with your friends and family and uh, coworkers and yada yada, all the fun stuff you're doing in your life, especially the events and things. And of course, that's what I use it for is to publicize all the different events that we that we handle here at the WAD. And also to Betsy Harvey, Betsy is uh, she has a brand new book out. My daughter, my son. One of the very first uh, young, well, as yet apparently not even old enough to really make their own decision, uh, that her uh, daughter became her son. So uh, obviously had to have a sex change operation at a very young age. And all of the things that happened ensued from that. And uh, it was a really great mother and mother and son story. That uh, every mother should hear and so you know it's a wonderful book out and of course you can find it on Amazon hey Betsy how you doing so without further ado I, you know what just to say that this is this is P, this is PJ of course also known as Joe and this is Al <laughs> and uh, we're doing a Sunday thing and we're talking space 
<laughs> he laughed Sunday. He said Sunday thing, and he laughed. It's funny. It's the next space. Oh, the and space. the next space, of course. You know, it, this isn't new space anymore. This is the next space. And that, is that because new space is no longer new space because we're already here? That just sounds totally wrong. Also <laughs> um. <laughs> <all> right. <laughs> well, you know, actually, you, you, you're actually probably pretty right, pretty correct there, because, you know, a lot of stuff's been going on in the last few years. I mean... Elon Musk started SpaceX uh, over 10 years ago, you know, and they've been just kicking some serious butt the last few years. Uh, they've got launch prices far and away order of magnitudes less than ULA nowadays, uh, way less than NASA ever even thought about doing. We've got... Um, yeah, which, of course, is always interesting. Well, yeah, well, of course, you know, there's some history to this. Yeah. Uh, NASA did a thing many years ago, back in the 80s, they created a thing called TransHab. It was basically a inflatable space habitat. The idea was great. It was awesome. And they were well on their way to making something work. But the doggone thing, uh, typical of uh, NASA political engineer scientist guys, uh, were spending so much money. They also known as Bob. Who? Bob, you know. Huh? He's a general Bob. Oh, a general Bob. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, bobbing in the political wings. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Bouncing Bob the Bob the PRB. <laughs> Bouncing from flower to flower, from newspaper <laughs> to newspaper, news source to news source, bobbing up and down, trying to get people's attention so that he can spout off whatever political crap he's wanting to park for the day. But anyway, we'll get off the high horse here also for a moment. Also known as a newspaper. Yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, plug you get your plugs in, so shut know. up and let me get going here. We have top politics in my newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this tram tab thing, many years ago, yeah. private guy comes along, a hotel guy, no less, comes along, <laughs> gets uh, NASA to license the technology to him. He completely remakes it. And then does the unthinkable. Using Russian rockets, he launches his inflatable habitat into space. into space, not once, but twice. Now, granted, these are prototypes, but did NASA ever get around to a prototype? No. And, of course, back in the day, you well, wouldn't think of using thinking, a Russian rocket. That is just a cool, spit, you know, space well, hotel. Well, the idea of a space hotel is pretty neat, and his are uh, being inflatable. They've got a lot more space inside, and in the last couple of years, they've shown, uh, well, that that the uh, Bigelow habitats are actually better insulated. They're better um, at resisting impacts, uh, and to a certain degree, for small impacts, they can actually self-repair. This is the same Bigelow that hardly anybody knows anything about because they, well, they don't do their own PR very well. Well, that's true. They don't get a lot of PR out there. But then again, here's the guy who, who in 2006 and 2007, launched his own prototype habitats into orbit. That's almost seven years ago now. Actually, it is seven years ago. And he's seen very little market interest in what he's done. <laughs> 
Probably because his wife said, you never take me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you know, okay, come on, come on, get off with the girl stuff. <laughs> Spaces guy stuff. Spaces oh, guy no. stuff. It's all about who's got oh, the biggest God. rocket. Well, uh, you ought to be able to. have always had the biggest rockets, baby. No, you've had the biggest engines. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your engines roar. Okay. <laughs> Most girls, you get their engine going, it just, it's like a NASA rocket. It doesn't shut off until it's done. Well, of course. <laughs> like men are any different. Well, that's true. You light it up and it's got to go somewhere. Well, uh, there you go. There there you go. <laughs> of course, NASA rockets are only good for one shot. So are most men. <laughs> <laughs> but Elon Musk hopes to change that. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I mean, he's already proven just <laughs> this, this month that they can launch a booster and bring that booster right back to Earth. Slow and steady. You just give me way too many things to talk about here. <laughs> and it stayed erect for eight seconds after it was done. I love that. What could you do with an extra eight seconds, I huh? Know I could do a lot with eight seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, somebody else has, has uh, got on my mind this week, too. Um, when we talk about the International Space Station... And we talk about rockets. We talk about the space station having to periodically boost its orbit a little bit. They, they need a rocket, and they need fuel to do that. Now, typically, and, and here we are back to the Russians again, it's the Russian uh, unit, the module, I, I forget which one it is. I think it's the, the Zarya unit that uh, several modules dock to, like the Soyuz, and they provide the boost that every now and then, lifts the space station back to its own orbit. Because despite what a lot of people think, there is actually air molecules and there is drag on the on the ISS at its current altitude. I don't think so. Yeah, but most people think that, well, they're up in space. Well, yeah, sort of, yes. It's not outer space yet. There is part of the Earth's atmosphere dragging on the station, clawing on it, trying to pull it back down to Earth. Gee, sounds like a few women I know. Um, <laughs> but they've got this booster, and they bring it up every once in a while. They use the, they use the Soyuz sometimes. They use the ATV sometimes. Um, and these are craft that bring up cargo, and, of course, the Soyuz brings up the uh, astronauts and cosmonauts. I guess I should say the Russian cosmonauts as well. Um, but... The um, whole thing is, there's a new contender out here. And if the Russians decide to pull their modules off the ISS, um, yeah, they're going to force NASA to either, A, come up with the ability to boost the ship, the station, back into its orbit on a regular basis, or they're going to have to dump the thing in the ocean. Well, there's actually a couple of contenders. One thing that's really excited and, and, and I look forward to is the Vasimir system. Now, NASA is already scheduled to mount a test module of the Vasimir engine on the ISS and have it do some test firings 
in orbit to see if it can actually deliver on the promise of being able to boost the ISS uh, and keep it at its target orbit. And as I, as I mentioned very briefly earlier, I would bet those <laughs> folks would just fall all over themselves for the chance to put their Vasimir units up there and some power source to be able to boost the ISS if the Russians should happen to leave and take their toys home. I can see a comic with uh, Superman pointing at it and saying, I just, I told you to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I have to keep fixing you? <laughs> Leave it to a girl. Leave it to a girl to come up with a weird thing to say about science, I tell you. Speaking of which, I'm getting your links up, so shut up. Oh, okay. Thank you, Miss Engineer. I guess she's good for something. Yeah. More than one thing, I think. Oh, Not yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that one we want to put up. Um, no, the rest don't. Okay. Um, so you guys got plenty of look at. Oh, yeah. We got lots of links up here on, on, on the show. Um, we're getting up all the links from the various places, such as the... Um, information about the Earth bacteria being tough enough for space. we got the Exodus Earth uh, about Callisto up there. It, an intriguing video. I encourage you to take a look at it, uh, especially if you're minded towards the idea of getting off of Earth and settling the other celestial bodies that are out there. Now, I'm going to kind of use this as my segue into our next segment um, and talk about settling space, which is the whole purpose for my wanting to start this program. You know, we've sat on our haunches for a long time, waiting for NASA or Roscosmos or um, ESA or JAXA or any of these organizations to come up with a way or, or even a plan or a vision. Um, we've had visions from uh, uh, Gerard K. O'Neill uh, talking about O'Neill cylinders and, and O'Neill modules. We've had uh, people from well before Dr. O'Neill, and we've had people in the Mars Society now. We have the Planetary Society. We have the Moon Society, and, and all of these organizations are all fractured and all bellyaching, and, and you know, i gotta, I got to hand it to NASA and Russia. At least they got in the sandbox together to create the International Space Station. I got to hand it to them, and, I, and, and it wouldn't surprise me to find out that it was NASA and Roscosmos, um, the nice kids on the block, who worked all that out, and the politicians just who built the sandbox just kind of got rooked into it. Um, but you know, the sad thing is, is the Moon Society, Mars Society, and Planetary Society refused to get in the sandbox. They just flat refused. They don't want a single concerted mission to take everybody everywhere. I know some really stubborn women like that. Yeah, I met a couple of that. They, 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 it, it, it's all about, seems to be, all about the not invented here. Um, Bob Zubrin talks about going to Mars. He published his Mars Direct uh, approach and so forth. And it's a, it's a good approach if you're going to Mars and that's the only destination. But Mars can't be our only destination. The vision that he puts forth along with the, mass, the NASA idea of going to Mars direct, again, is about 
bases. And I got to tell you, anything that talks about bases, I'm going to point back to history. Let's 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 take a look a little bit about history and look at <laughs> what the U.S. government did with its cavalry and, and military when it decided to fight a war against the American Native Americans. Injuns, they called them in them Indians, days. Indians. Red men. Fighting over the buffalo. Rightly so, because the military comes through and they're riding on their iron horse railroad. What does iron horse have to do with buffalo? Everything. The whole reason that the American military started killing off the buffalo was to supply, and it really wasn't the military doing the killing. It was the railroad guys killing off the buffalo to feed the men on their work teams that were building the railroad. They, the railroad was crossing well, all the migrations. But here, you know, let, let me get back to my point. Yeah, my point was is that as as the homesteaders traveled across the plains and into the western territories and started grab, doing the land grab against the Native Americans, they also were killing off buffalo. But we had the military following these settlers and building forts. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting... Words, they had to have some law... Even though they're... Oh, no, this wasn't about law. This was about the American military protecting American citizens. Which they didn't consider... Well, let's not get into that. Yeah, let's not get into the politics. But let's just talk about the way it worked. That's not any fun. Settlers would go out. They'd stake a land claim. Mm -hmm. They'd call for the military to come in and save them from marauding Indians who were just trying to protect their land and buffalo and food. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and the military would come in and force the natives to to migrate further out of their ancestral lands. But the important thing I wanted to talk about is, is it took a massive effort to resupply these forts. No different, and these forts were bases in their day. These were the government military bases, so the forward bases. So what you're saying is that a fort is kind of like what we would be putting on the absolutely. Because every absolutely every single one of these forts was manned by military men and a few merchants who would come in and to supply them. I turned everything off to supply these military men with food and clothing and and books and mail and all the stuff that a base needs from home. But here's the rub: every single fort that was placed by the United States military during this period of westward expansion was a temporary installation. The military built it as a temporary installation. It was never intended to become a town. Now, some of them did. As settlers moved in, surrounded the forts, as well, merchantmen... They, they were safest places. They were. And as, as merchants moved in and started serving the various townspeople, the forts became a nucleus. And when the town grew big enough to support itself, the military moved out. They left. And we look at things today. Military installations are called bases today. And here in Arizona, we've had many times where the military bases that we have here, Davis-Monthan and Williams Air Force Force Base, in fact, Williams is gone, closed due to budget cuts, and... I remember the economic impact in our area was pretty substantial when that base closed. And all of those military people ended up 
going back well, into the military just system. Well, they built a community and, out there in Queen Creek. Yes, they did. And then the military base closed down. Right. So and Queen Creek, Queen Creek survived. Survived because it was big enough by that point. Right. But here's the rub: a base. <laughs> when the bases NASA's been talking about, and Rob Zubrin as well, are manned by two to three people. They show up, they drop a tin can on there. Robert Zubrin. Uh, he's head of the Mars Society, or at least one of the, the biggest leaders. Uh, they talk about putting this tin can on, the, on Mars. Um, they talk about supplying it from Earth. Now, I, I, this is the other thing. i got a real problem with supplying Mars from Earth. First of all... I'd be like supplying the Old West from Boston. Yeah, when they were actually supplied from St. Louis. I mean, that's double no, the distance. Even, yeah, so if you want to think about it, it's like supplying them from Russia. Well, not only that, but here's the other thing. Think about all the wagons that went west to carry supplies out to the bases. Right, right. Going to Mars and sending supplies to Mars, even the moon. I mean, NASA's new program to send stuff to the moon is the same kind of a plan, mm -hmm. where you would load up all of these wagons, in Boston, you would haul ass all the way out to the moon or all the way out to Mars with all these supplies, and you get there, you'd unload all the supplies, and then you take the wagons out back and you burn them all in a great big bonfire. Yeah, that's basically what they're doing. That's what NASA wants to do for the moon and Mars. They want to throw everything away when they're done. That's well, what their plan is for the space station. They're done with it, they're going to throw it away. When are they going to get the point? You know, here we've been pushing. They've been doing this 40 years. We've been pushing, you know, all these kids to learn about, you know, recycling. And here we're throwing away our biggest budget items ever in the history of America. <laughs> there, was an, there was an article in the paper about the RD-180 and the ULA and the Russian engines and all this. And they were talking about, somebody asked the question. Okay, ULA, how long would it take you and how much would it cost to build a replacement for the RD-180? You know what they said? It can't be done. No. They said it can be done. But Congress would have to pony up five years and five billion dollars. Or I'm sorry, five years and a billion dollars. i got to get my numbers right here. Five years and a billion dollars. That's over a billion times. Yeah, I know. Once you yeah, once once you get over a, a few hundred million, I mean it 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 it's it's, it's, it's a fantasy a anyway. Yeah, still a crap load of money. But you're talking something that they would spend five years to build, to design and build, okay. and even then, we don't have a guarantee that 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 one billion dollars of an investment would work. Well, you got SpaceX standing over here in the wings, ready to go. They've got their own engines. Yeah. They're about to. They're they're going. The plan is the SpaceX will have its Falcon Heavy ready to launch next year. And ULA wants us to wait five years for a new heavy lift engine. It's, it's, I don't think so. It's the stupidity of it all. Okay. Well, it's it's the government contract. Government contract. And it's it's not limited to space. A lot of the military contracts oh, are run the same right, way. Right. Again. You know. Goes to show you. But, you know, back to the talk, topic about settlement. When we look at space settlement, you don't, 
Here's the you thing. NASA's tin can methodology. And burn up all your supplies that make a lot of Well, yeah, not, not only that, but it's a tin can. It has a lifetime of maybe 10 years. Tops. Tops. But get this. Would you go to, would you move into um, a house? Now, again, mind you, you're buying the house. Would you move into a house the size of a living room and have to eat, sleep, drink, cook, bathe <laughs> in that one room? Oh, my God. That's what we're doing now. <laughs> well, that's the... Okay, uh, we got two rooms. Yeah, and most apartments actually have a separate bathroom and a bedroom. Okay. You know, Not even a studio them. apartment. Which has more room than this tin can that NASA wants to send. A studio apartment has effectively more room for one person than does the spacecraft NASA wants to send. In fact, I, I was doing an essay a little while ago, and I found a reference that the unit they're wanting to send is like taking a 40,000-pound motorhome. Now, we're talking what's called a classic, a Class A motorhome. Okay, sleep six, okay. reasonably comfortable. Once you rearrange everything for sleeping, you know, you drop down the bed, you fold up the table, all the kind of stuff you got to do, and everybody climbs in bed and goes to sleep. And these are basically foam mattresses, all right? Uh-huh. Taking a 40,000-pound 40, Class A motorhome, launching it up to the moon or Mars, dropping it onto the surface, and it can't move. You drop it down, you land it, and how long does your gas and water last in a motorhome? About two weeks, in the best of circumstances. Uh-huh. You can get about two weeks out of a motorhome. Okay. Which, interestingly enough, is how NASA sees it working. Their trips to the moon would be about two weeks before they'd need to bring up more supplies. And this is from the same NASA that back in 1985 had a project where they stuck a guy in a... I mean, it's not like you can just go to a grocery store and get more stuff, you know. Well, that's true. But but here's a point to remember. Back in 1985, NASA had an experiment that they did. And it, it went through several phases, okay? In this experiment, they put a guy in one side and a bunch of plants in the other side of a sealed mini-habitat. Now, the idea was to find out. They wanted to know if the plants could support the person. Uh Now, it was a small experiment, granted. But the guy was in there for several days at a time. Now, the interesting thing was, is what they found out is, is that, yeah, the plants could produce enough air to supply the guy. Now, recently, as as few as 10 or 15 years ago, we had... That science, that very project, was used as a foundation for Biosphere 2 down close to Tucson. Now, it messed up. They messed up Biosphere because they put too much tech in. You look at the original experiment. It was a pressure vessel with plants in one side and a guy in the other. Now, he just did his stuff. He didn't have a lot of tech. They didn't try a great big huge thing. They didn't try a lot. It was just to test the theory. And so the people from Biosphere took that idea 
and they tried to do the science calc and all this other stuff, and they tried to create a whole bunch of tech to support the people that they were going to put in biosphere. And my personal opinion is, is I think their tech got away from them. They built this huge concrete foundation. They created yeah. these, these monolithic technological lungs to breathe. And, and it, it functioned. It, it worked fairly well. I actually took the tour through there, and it's, it's, it's a technological marvel. But that's the issue. You can't, exactly. And so we've got to go back to the original experiment and look at what's really going on there. In Biosphere, they tried to artificially cover a lot of the things that the Biosphere should have done itself. The tech got in the way of the experiment. And in the worst way, the very foundation of the entire experiment the concrete that they poured was what was sucking out the oxygen. Yeah. And that's just downright scary. Makes um, I wonder how much all these other, look at, you know, these things that we're talking about, places, you know, shopping malls that are just sitting there. Well, and, and we've, we've heard for years that our very homes, when you look at the artificial fibers, the man-made fibers, you look at the way that our air conditioning runs and how it gets corrupted with dust and mites and all of these little creepy crawly things that get into our okay, beds okay, and okay. oh, you're getting grossed out now. Go yeah. on, good, because it wasn't too many years ago that there were articles telling people that our homes had become fire traps. That the very sealed well, us. no, not the lead. The lead was the least of our worries. The lead paint, that's decades old. That's done and gone. We don't use lead, leaded paint anymore. But you look at the fibers in our carpet and in our furniture and in our clothing even. A lot of these are man-made fibers. Now, we're getting away from all of the flammable, uh, uh, really bad fibers nowadays where it used to be that you had formaldehyde that gets into the air. You had fibers that if they caught fire, they created toxic gases that would make just crawling on the floor to get away from the smoke not helpful because these these toxic gases were heavier than air and they would drop to the floor and you'd choke to death before you got out, before you even burned to death. Okay. Uh, and so these are the issues. Our, our very homes have become toxic issues. And I, I am concerned that the ISS could be headed down the same road. And despite the, the Herculean efforts that NASA goes to to protect the astronauts' lives in the station with the artificial fibers and the artificial materials that they use, they have to go through very stringent things. And the astronauts are in good stead because they look at interactions, they look at potentials, they have uh, fire prevention policies and procedures in place, uh, rigorous efforts that they take to protect the experiments, the astronauts, and the, the other animal and insect passengers. But here's the rub. You're still looking at a tin can. And what's the worst thing about a motorhome? You can't make it any bigger. I was going to say that. It, 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 yeah, I... What were you going to say? This has got to be good. <laughs> no, not a good time. Come on, spell it. That, that, 
that shit-eating grin on your face. Come on, must have been good. <laughs> oh, Spill it. Oh, we're about time for a break anyway, so yeah. this is a good segue. What was it? What were you thinking? No, that's okay. Motorhome is not expandable. Well, that's, that's yeah. And if you're dropping a 40,000-pound motorhome on the surface of the moon or on Mars, it's got to be supplied from somewhere uh, by the end of two weeks. And if you don't bring a new, and if you want to bring another crew, you've even got more problems because now you got to bring more supplies. And they're going to throw and, away and the then, ship that brings it. Right. So, you know, so and then where you put it? It's it's the worst kind of money pit. Well, so that and where you put the trash when you're done. Exactly. When we come back, we'll be talking about some new alternatives that are coming down the pike that some people are talking about. And with that, we're going on break. This is KWAD Radio bringing you the next space program, talking about what it is going to take us to get into the next space and become a multi-planetary species. Welcome back. This is Blog Talk Radio, broadcasting tonight live on the Next Space program. Commentary, discussion about the Next Space settlement. This is a, this is a topic we don't actually see much in the airwaves. Um, there's some discussion, but it's it's almost always. Um, 
executed from a point of view of the shiny, technologically, super clean, um, supplied from Earth perspective. Um, but it's also unrealistic. Um, every plan that I've read about that would take from NASA or, for that matter, Roscosmos uh, from Russia, um, whether it's the Mars Society or the Moon Society, every single plan that I've ever seen that talks about settling space proposes the, either a small or a gargantuan big tin can that people would live in and ultimately would be supplied from Earth. Well, what's the difference between that and, and the hotel? The Bigelow Hotel. The, the Bigelow Hotel. Uh, not a whole lot. Um, Bigelow's hotels would also need to be supplied from Earth. The difference between the tin cans that NASA has designed to date and built and the Bigelow space habitat is, is first in the amount of volume that's available to the astronauts um, and second in that the material used by the Bigelow habitats are far more forgiving of the space environment in that they provide a good bit more radiation protection. They provide a good bit more um, uh, protection from micrometeorite or space junk pieces, especially the small stuff. Um, the skin of a Bigelow habitat actually has a kind of a modicum of self-repair built into it because of its layers of material. NASA's habitats are typically a hard metal um, uh, getting on that thing again. canister, basically, with hatches at both ends. Now, Bigelow's units also have hatches, but um, Bigelow's modules are, to a certain degree, far more flexible, literally. Um, <laughs> they also uh, protect from more radiation exposure, and they're intended to be modular. NASA's units, to give them credit, are, are well designed. They're, they're, they're beautifully engineered, but they're not intended as modules as part of a bigger assemblage. They're yeah. intended for a particular specific mission. So what okay? about all these people seem to think that we put people on Mars and they're going to supply the Earth with stuff? It just when 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 you look at the cost, the current estimated cost of sending a crew to land on Mars and live is in the range of five billion dollars for one trip. That's just there, right? It's just there. That doesn't include a return trip. It doesn't include the next um, supply run. It doesn't include the cost of the supplies themselves. That's just to get the first crew to Mars and on the surface. And, of course, that also assumes you're going to be sending them with a lander. You're going to be sending them with a supply, with a, uh, a habitat and all this kind of good stuff. One of the things that is 
heartening about what Bigelow has constructed and, and developed is that he has shown, or at least demonstrated in uh, mock-ups, that they're prepared to develop this module for landing on the moon, or perhaps even one could extend that to landing on Mars later. The advantage is, is that the habitat Bigelow is providing has a lot more room inside, simply because it's designed differently than the NASA um, the NASA way, which is a hard press. I can see an advertisement now. Okay. The little wife, you know, want to take her somewhere, want to get her a little house on the moon. It'd be like a little picket fence thing. And all the amenities. Get away from it all. Yeah, but in reality, no NASA-based habitat, and I seriously doubt that anyone uh, defined by any of the advocacy groups at this stage is going to provide any amenities at all. These are all intended to be science, engineering, research missions. These aren't about settlement. Right. But None of them. But you're, you're saying that we have to settle space. We have to settle. And one of the first things that settling space requires is that we build our habitat when we get there. We don't take it with us. That's crazy. Again, that, that, that'd be like all, trying to all, put a... always made me wonder. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Always made me wonder. You know, you see these houses that are, you know, on these big trailers and, and huge loading zone. You know, you can't, can't drive on next to them because they're too big. How much is it cost to move those things? It's the same thing. You're I had a mobile home once. I remember having a mobile home once, and I had to pay to move it from um, South Carolina up to Indiana. It's been a lot of years ago, and I'm sure the prices have gone up a bit, but... Probably a lot. I remember the seeing the bill for that move. It was in the range of $8,000. Now, I happen to recall how much I paid for that mobile home. I could have gotten another one. Well, it was a nice mobile home. I mean, it was a 14 wide, and it was a 14 by 60, as I recall. Two bedrooms. It was reasonably comfortable. Okay? But it was two years old. And we know what happens to cars when you drive them off the lot in the first year. Their value gets cut in half. Now, we paid about, oh, I want to say somewhere between fourteen and $16,000 for the motor mobile home. Two years later, it probably wasn't worth half that, maybe seven, 8000 And here, I had it moved for the cost of the motor home, mobile home. That's what I say. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty penny. I know that some, you know, you see some of these, uh, these houses that they come into town, the, the, the historic homes, that they come in, they dig under, they put steel girders in, they throw a trailer under it, and they're moving this entire house you know, 10 miles into town to be placed on this nice chunk of land as a yeah. historical home. They moved the entire rawhide. Yeah, town. right. Here in, in you're thinking, okay, Scottsdale. How much money that costs? Well, these homes, when they pick up these, what, when they pick up these homes, 
these can cost between ten and and, and thirty thousand dollars to move these homes. Oh, easily. You know, and yeah. and like you talk about moving rawhide, must have been close to that expense. You know, so we can't afford to transplant a habitat from Earth to Mars or to the moon for that matter. Yeah, it's only three days away. But it's like taking an umbrella inside of inside a car. Yeah. It just doesn't you just, work. Why don't you just, because it's, now you got an umbrella like in a, <laughs> a BW. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's not enough room for that. But you're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Like, we'll it do up. it because we can. So, crazy, 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 crazy. so here's the thing. But then the question comes to mind. Okay, yeah, I'm talking off my hat here. <laughs> but what can we do? I don't know. What can we do? We've talked about in the community, and when I talk about the community, I'm talking about the new space community, or at least mm-hmm. the space advocacy community. That the, the, the ideas they've come up with so far to take advantage of um, locations that might be able to use local resources as part of your habitat. Again, in almost every instance, they talk about, for example, on the moon, we talk about using lava tube. You know what lava tube is? <laughs> I'm going to tell you anyway because your, 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 your mouth is full. I know what a lava lamp is. A lava lamp. Well, a lava tube is when volcanic lava from a volcano travels underground it literally melts a cave tube in the ground. Now on Earth, these caves can vary from something really small about the size of an earthworm, just a little tendril, to things as, as high as 10 or 20 feet in diameter. They're big enough to live in almost. All right. On the moon, these lava tubes are anywhere from 10 feet to 100 feet in diameter. So We've only seen, huh? well, right, and that's pretty tough to get something small enough that we could pressurize. You'd have to haul a whole load of air to pressurize it if you could seal it. Now, therein lies the rub. The one rill that we've seen that is a true indicator of a, uh, excuse me, a lava tube on the moon, we have no, I- excuse me, <coughs> no idea how big it is. We can't measure it yet. I think he needs to go get a drink. <laughs> After the show. We only got 15 minutes left, so we're doing good. Can do it, guys? So a lava tube on the moon, which has one-sixth gravity of Earth, is going to be a lot bigger. And getting into the lava tube is problematic. If you tried to land through the op- the, the caved-in part that we that our, that our scientists have spotted, mm-hmm. well, then you've got a whole new problem. Well, yeah. You gonna land a lunar lander in that hole? No, I don't think so. I don't care if that thing's thirty feet across. <laughs> You're gonna have a devil of a time getting in. Now, even then, if you get inside the lava tube, how are you gonna pressurize something that big? I think they were killed Superman that way. Yeah, they were trying. <laughs> so you know, lava tubes aren't gonna work. Well, then they talked about um, uh, let's land and let's put a uh, clear acrylic. Uh, dome over a, over a crater. Well, no, that's going to take industrial capacity because you're going to have to produce the acrylic 
You're going to have to mold it. You're going to have to construct it. And that's going to take time that we don't have. It's also going to take robots. And on the moon, heh, I give any robot a maximum, a construction robot, mind you, or a mining robot, a maximum of, of three to six months before it's going to get so clogged up with that lunar regolith, which is like like chunks. It's like teeny tiny shards of glass. Yes, I heard. It's that... Uh, Well, you just um, so you know there's there's a lot of issues, and so the engineers are working overtime all over the place to come up with a habitat that they can drop on the surface of Moon or on the surface of Mars. Now I've seen some of these the the CEAC CEAC project out at uh, I want to say. It's either ASU or um, University of Arizona down in Tucson. Um, they've got an intriguing project of a robotic lander that would land and set up a greenhouse. It's a great idea, and I know they're using a lot of the technology that's being put in place at Antarctica at, uh, at the South Pole. And they've been doing that down there. Oh, yeah, the, exactly. It's kind of a hydroponics setup. You and I talked about that, dude. Right. Uh, I've talked to him a couple of times. They've been down at the Tucson Festival of Books uh, a couple of years in a row. Mm. But here's the rub about what they're proposing. First off, uh, it's a great idea because it all unfolds like the petals of a flower, and you have these greenhouses that roll out from the thing. They can't get funding. That's the first problem. The second problem is it, it would be a radiation issue both on the moon and on Mars, so you're not going to get people to, to be able to live inside this um, once you get it running. Second of all, uh, there are some issues that they're still working on in addition to the funding. It's hydroponic. Mm -hmm. Now, hydroponic requires specially formulated nutrient solutions to produce the high-quality vegetables that it does. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's an engineered solution. And when properly maintained with extensive engineering expertise and man-hours, it's very, very successful. The Antarctica installation has proven that over many years. They get some really lush vegetables for the crews down there in Antarctica. Now, and it's been running many years, but it's hydroponic. And it's dependent on a highly technical staff to support it. Well, you suggest a hydroponic group. No, I didn't. I've never suggested hydroponics. I've suggested aquaponics. Oh. Now, see, aquaponics is a low-tech approach. I scientists would slightly change the name of the fusion. <laughs> Aquaponics is about using a natural cycle to achieve the same results. Right, right, right. Instead of we having... Which what? We knew about that. Please. Right. Instead of using an engineered solution that hydroponics suggests, and while it does uh, produce a, a high-quality output, the problem is they haven't solved the high-cost input to get that high-quality output. 
it's 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 a diminishing returns equation. It always puts out less than the money and the time that you put in. And this is the rub about an engineered solution. Take a look at our farm production nowadays. It's an engineered solution. These are factory farms that produce our food, and we're having problems with it. The more they genetically engineer the food, the worse it gets for us. Okay? And, and so at some point, we need to back away a little from engineering solutions. And we need to look again at natural solutions such as aquaponics as opposed to hydroponics. Now, the wonderful thing about aquaponics is it uses a natural cycle to provide the nutrients for the plants. And then it lets the plants provide a natural cycle to provide the cleaning up for the fish. And so you get a self-perpetuating cycle as long as you put in a small amount of energy for a pump to cycle through both sides of the equation. Now, there is a website out there, and I'd, I'd recommend, probably one of the most developed solutions that I've seen or read about is a website called um, gardenpool.org. I heartily suggest you take a look at what they've done. Um, the organization has actually been growing uh, quite well recently, um, and they've actually got a solution that gives us a, a multi-year project that's been in the public eye that has um, handcrafted solutions based on the natural cycle that actually offer solutions that might work in a real-life situation on another celestial object. Um, if we take their solution, we can probably, they're feeding a family of four out of their swimming pool. And again, they've extended it over the last few years. They've now got crops growing on their roof. They've got, uh, the last I visited, they had some goats. They've got chickens. They've got uh, solar. The, the whole thing's driven by a solar panel set. So it's literally um, an otherworldly settlement on planet Earth. But here's the beauty of this. When we look at NASA's engineered solutions that they want to take to other planets or moons or even put up in a, an O'Neill cylinder, you're talking highly engineered systems that are not fault tolerant. You've got systems integration issues. You've got supply issues from Earth. You've got replenishment issues of the special nutrients. And this is where we run into the problems of diminishing returns on space settlement, whether it be in an O'Neill cylinder or whether it be on the surface of the Moon or Mars. So we have to find um, grounded solutions based on natural cycles that we can support with a minimum of energy that will then turn around and support us. Aquaponics is one way to do that, and Garden Pool is just one example of these. Um, the, there are many solutions out there that offer insights into how to take advantage of these. And one of, one of the very important things that aquaponics does offer is this um, compact food 
air and water recycling system that hydroponics doesn't offer. It flat can't because so much of it has to be engineered and it has to be monitored and cared for by engineers. Aquaponics can be built and maintained by everyday people. And here's the rub, by people who have wanted to go to the moon and Mars for 40 plus years. Aquaponics is the technology that can make it possible for us to achieve being a multi-planet species. Um, and it's just one piece of this. A second important piece is going to be more difficult. And that's one of the challenges that NASA and ESA and JAXA are all looking at now, and that is, is the idea of how do we address the big trash heap that we have put up into Earth orbit that's going to get in the way of every single launch that we keep throwing up into orbit. We've got to do something about this, because when we start considering being a multi-planet species, there is going to be travel off Earth in a frequency of launches that is going to make what we've been doing look like a Pony Express trip. And these are serious issues that we face in the coming years. Next time we get together, uh, I'll be talking about some of the issues and also some of the things that we can look forward to in the coming years, um, which uh, I'll mention here, you ought to go Google the idea of balloon trips to 100,000 feet. For those of you who may recall, a few months ago, maybe many months ago, um, Rick Baumgartner teamed up with Red Bull flew a balloon to 100,000 feet for a skydive. Granted, he had a special suit. But he skydived from 100,000 feet, the well, edge of space. It, no, it wasn't a super suit. But I remember preparing an essay at the time, and I'll, ha I'll find that essay and bring it back. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. <laughs> where I talk about where extreme sports might go. And the very first step, that I mentioned in the essay was the idea of tourist trips yeah. to 100,000 feet on a balloon. You yeah. remember that essay, yeah. don't you? Yeah. And the thing is, there is an article, I want to say, I'll find it, I'll have it for you next week, that talks about the potential of a tourist trip to 100,000 feet in a balloon. That's, that's the ultimate mile high club. That is, well, it is for now. <laughs> Who knows what's next? How high can you go? Next, next time, next week, same space time, same space channel, we will be looking at the next space. We'll be talking about news of the week and new space. We'll be talking about the next extreme sports and what some strange things we might see coming soon. And we'll be talking about some of the commercial and tourist things that are coming down the pipeline that you just might want to realize you missed it, folks.
But we'll have it for you next week on the next space. Okay, I want to tell you people about something coming up. Obviously, we've got the Wednesday show. Uh, this is our monthly uh, you know, KWOD radio show for the Hey Girls. Uh, they're and they're not the musical group. What they what is is a show, you know, surrounding the local music groups. And this week, or yeah, this week will be on starting seven o'clock for the show itself. We'll be at the Ice House starting to set up around five, and uh, the show starts promptly at seven. And just hold your fingers and your toes because we hope that this particular recording really just knocks the socks out, living socks off you guys. So. With that, we want that. That's going to start at seven. Again, that's this Wednesday on the twenty-first, and we're going to be uh, have the live live concert with Black Mountain Moonshine. You know, I heard some of their music, and I have to say that they don't sound anything like Moonshine. So, but you know what? I really like them. They sound just down home to me, and they and I just I love the the beat and the sound, and that's, that's all that matters to me. Get out and dance. So we're going to be at the Ice House, and if you guys don't know where the Ice House is, I dropped the link on there for the information of the Ice House Tavern. And that is at... Oh, put it on there. 3855 East Thomas Road. Now, for those people who say, well, yes, I was there, but I couldn't find it. It's behind the building. I cannot stress that enough. Behind the building. The entire plaza used to be. It's behind the building. So, you know, I don't hear you guys say, well, I couldn't find it because, you know, it was there. And it's like, no. You didn't go behind the building. The, the picture is right there. You guys, that's the Ray logo. Ice House is, there's a uh, really wonderful, <laughs> I got to say, this tavern is like right up against there right up against the glass for the hockey rink. So, you know, we get some pucks coming right at us. So come on out and have some fun with us. And then next Thursday is another show with our same bad channel, same bad time, W530. And that'll be with Jay Stritch. He's a, an author. And that's all I have on him in the moment. He's in my queue to go. So definitely take a look at that, guys, because... Um, be a lot of fun for both. And, of course, listen in. And believe it or not, we're not supposed to be doing anything next weekend. How did that happen? So we'll be back here again at the show, and then 7 o'clock, hopefully on time this time. And we put it up ahead of time, so that way we'll be there. Uh, Arizona Dreamin' Romance Conference, 30th, 31st. And that's in Chandler. And, of course, can't forget Phoenix Comic Con, no matter how much you try. And that's June 5th through 8th. And then I'll be at Combat Con, believe it or not. I'm talking about Chicks and K-Mail, 13th and 14th and 15th. And I'll be missing the Man Monster Party. Sorry, guys, but I'll be sending somebody else. And then, of course, Amazing Las Vegas Comic Con is the June 20th through the 22nd. Man, that's just a that's just a load of so much awesome that you can't hardly stand it in one month. So uh, June's a, a pat month, guys. So have fun with it, and I will see you.
next Wednesday. This is K-Wad Radio and Patty Holster signing out.